How is it possible that it's already August? We hope you are enjoying your summer. Back by popular demand is our AirPods Pro giveaway. Members who successfully answer our bonus content quiz will be entered for a chance to win a pair of AirPods Pro. To participate, you must have access to the bonus sections of the podcasts, which you get by becoming a member. Members also receive an ad-free listening experience, an evening newsletter, an invitation to join the DSR Slack community, and more. Best of all, if you become a member in the month of August, you'll receive 50% off the normal membership price. Visit thedsrnetwork.com slash buy and enter code BONUSCONTENT, one word, at checkout. That's thedsrnetwork.com slash buy and code Bonus content. Thank you for your support. Nine, twelve, ten, twenty-eight, two, twenty-three. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super secret studio in the third sub basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm your host, David Rothkopf, coming to you today from dark, gray, really kind of foreboding-looking Washington, D.C. Uh, This is our first show of the week, and so it is Spy Show with Mark Polymeropoulos, my co-host. How you doing, Mark? I'm doing great. I am once again on the road live from New Brunswick, New Jersey, where last night I took my son, who just turned 21, to see his first Metallica show. Wow. Yeah, we're going to talk about that in a second. <laughs> um, uh, we are joined today by uh, Alex Finley. Alex is a former officer of the CIA's Directorate of Operations, where she served in West Africa and Europe prior to joining the CIA. Uh, Alex was a journalist. She is the author of the Victor Caro series of satirical novels about the CIA. So that brings us right back to Mark going to see the Metallica concert. You're writing satirical novels about the CIA. Would you ever go so far? as to have a character like Mark, who let's just say is over 40, going to a Metallica concert um, in New Jersey. He also alleges that when he was stationed overseas, all they played was Metallica. Um, And how do you think that probably impacted their effectiveness? Uh, I actually didn't know Mark before I wrote the books. And there's a character in there that he insists is him, um, but oh. I, I swear I did not know him at the time, but that wouldn't surprise me that Metallica was quite popular among the, the people out in, in the types of fields that Mark was working in. Why do you say that? I mean, what, what, what explains that? The, the stresses or that they'd lost touch uh. with reality? Why is this about me? What's happened to the show already? <laughs> I, part I would probably say probably a little bit of both because you do start living sort of on another planet and it's definitely a stressful uh, place to be. And I think, I don't know as much about Mark's history, but I think probably if you're uh, embedded with military and stuff, you're probably getting a whole different slew of types of, of music that you get into. But maybe Mark really just liked Metallica from the beginning and this has nothing to do with any of it. See, that's right. No. Okay. So, so now we're going to, we're going to, 
dive into this a little bit because here's the true story is that I was, as I was reading, um, I think it was Victor in Trouble. There's a character there, the station chief, who uh, is a bit of a boob. Um, uh, uh, it's, it's great satire, but as he's, I, I think it was as he's sitting in Europe, um, and this is where kind of the case officers have to do kind of the more refined kind of true espionage operations. Um, he has a picture in the background of a Predator drone. And I read it and I freaked out because that was my office in multiple places with a picture of a drone. And I immediately uh, pinged Alex on Twitter and I said, oh, my God, this is me. I was horrified. But of course, with a big smiley face. So um, uh, you, you nailed it. Great character. And uh, and we're going to uh, throughout the podcast today, we're going to plug uh, uh, so much of your stuff, but certainly those books, which, you know, if you're in the agency, they're wonderful because there's so much reality. If you're not, you can just laugh and we can laugh at ourselves. And I think that's why Alex kind of nailed it with that book series. Uh, well, see, there you go, Alex. Um, uh, it, it certainly speaks to your skills as a novelist that you could dream up a character like Mark oh, without having met him. I didn't meet him specifically, but oh. let's be clear. I definitely met that character. <laughs> oh. <laughs> Don't, wait a second. You're saying that out there on the front lines at the pointy end of the spear for the United States, there are people who are boobs, as to use Mark's term? I did not use that term. That's his term. <laughs> Um, well, immediately. Yeah, well, let's get a little more serious. Uh, you, you, do, you also have a newsletter, Mark Sherrod. Um, you talked a little bit about how the recent uh, indictment, um, uh, the most recent indictment of the former president, uh, is kind of a roadmap to how you do a self-coup. Um, and I thought that was kind of interesting since it's not just happening here. It's happening in Israel. It happens in other places from time to time. Uh, and so I thought maybe one place we could start is to have you talk a little bit about that. Yeah. I mean, if you read the indictment, it really does sort of outline uh, a number of the steps that anybody doing a self-coup would do. So just to make clear to the the audience that a, a self-coup is a little bit different than a coup d'etat. A coup d'etat is sort of where an outside force, usually a military or the junta, whatever, comes in and, and takes power in an undemocratic way. A self-coup is somebody who has been elected through democratic means and is in power, but then uses illegal means to remain in power. And so if you read Jack Smith's indictment of Trump, um, what Trump allegedly did really is a, a self-coup. It's using all of the levers of power around you um, to make sure that you stay in power. And it's installing your cronies in the Department of Justice and uh your cronies who are down in the state legislatures to make sure that they're doing your bidding. And the reasons that they do your bidding is out of loyalty, um, but loyalty only to an extent. It's really much more about maintaining their own position and power. And as long as you're the one who can give it to them, they'll remain loyal. Um, and as soon as you're the one who cannot give it to them, then you start to see cracks. And so I think it's pretty interesting if you look at the, the this Trump indictment and as you said, it goes on elsewhere. I think Israel is a very good example right now. Uh, Putin, I would argue, uh, has done self-coups where he's basically fixing the elections to make sure that he remains in power. And each step of the way, he's grabbing more power for himself. Um, Nicolas Maduro, for sure, in Venezuela is an example of coming to power through a self-coup. So we do see it in a lot of different places. And, and part of my point in my newsletter uh, rant last week was was that like so if you look at the countries that 
that do this, like Venezuela and like Russia, um, these aren't countries we want to emulate. And so what's so strange to me is where you see uh, really one entire political party in our country going along with it and, and cheering it in many ways, and, and some of them allegedly helping it. Uh, and so we need to realize that you know, we don't want to be Venezuela. There's, we really don't. We're the United States of America. We got a lot going for ourselves that Venezuela does not. So let's not aim to be Venezuela, right? That's just, that's just not who we want to be, I don't think. Well, well, I mean, it remains to be seen. Um, uh, right, but the choice has not been fully made. I want to turn it over to Mark, but I want to ask you one last question as a quick follow-up here, uh, just to go back to our earlier point about um, uh, nitwits in high positions in the intelligence community, uh, that part of these, this self-coup led to that. I mean, when you have Rick Grinnell or Cash Patel or those kind of guys in the intelligence community with no intel experience, um, purely put in place because they're presumed to be loyal and to keep an eye on people who might actually be uh, honoring their oath to the Constitution, that's got to lead to a lot of uh, uh, you know, disastrous implications for the United States, but really great opportunities for satirical novelists. It's actually harder, I think, for satirical novelists. I was writing Victor in Trouble, which is about a lot of this. It's about um, Russian influence operations against the United States. And so I was writing a lot of this as we were experiencing Trump's administration. And, and look, in Trump's administration, we saw from the very beginning total disdain for the, the national security community and for the intelligence community in particular. Uh, there was Trump's very first trip to CIA, which was uh, problematic, to say the least. Um, and then, as you said, the Cash Patels and the Rick Grinnells, but also giving Jared Kushner clearances when the, you know, the, the people doing the background checks that there's no way that this guy should have it. Um, and you could sort of get this feeling around Washington that having access to intelligence was much more about status uh, and just being able to say that we have access to it. Um, and it was treated more, that's it, as a status symbol than as we are serious policymakers who need access to this information to make the difficult decisions that we have to make. Um, and so the problem when all of that's actually going on and you're trying to write satire is it's in real life, it's really sad and it really makes you angry. Um, and it's a real problem that you're grappling with just as a former CIA officer, as a citizen. Um, but then as the novelist trying to say, okay, but it's so absurd. I have to find a way to explain to the, to the reader why this is problematic, but in a fun and entertaining and accessible way. Yeah. Now, well, I mean, perfect example of what you're saying is Trump on the tape about the alleged Iran war plan document turns to his crew and says, isn't this cool? I mean, it was really kind of amazing that, you know, after his presidency, he feels compelled to say stuff like that. Mark? So, so uh, Alex, I couldn't agree, agree with you more. And, you know, one of the things I just kind of as a as a little kind of peek behind the scenes is a lot of us formers, we have kind of an informal network. And I will I will say that Alex really is considered not a but the expert on Russian information operations. Um, so while you're writing these satirical novels, you also, uh, have, you know, there's a very serious side to you. Um, uh, and so your your newsletter is fantastic. And what you have to say is really important. But I think you, you picked up on something that's interesting when you said, you know, we all had a sense of anger. And I think that really is correct. And so let's 
jump forward in terms of Russian information operations now. We have a country, obviously, that's that's going right now through some political dysfunction. And I think, you know, we haven't seen anything yet. Um, there's going to be trials. The, the, the 24 uh, election cycle is going to be probably a nightmare. Um, so how do you, as one, again, one of the preeminent experts on, on Russian, what we call IO, how do you see the Russians uh, taking advantage of this? You know, you know, obviously, there's a lot they did in 2016. They continue to do so. But what what do you anticipate them doing? What can we expect? And most importantly, how do we combat that? Yeah, that's the, the billion dollar question. Uh, definitely, Russia is going to take advantage of, of the, the disruption that we already have going on. Um, one of my mantras, one of the mantras of covert action uh, at CIA is, you cannot create conditions on the ground. You can only uh, exploit the conditions that already exist. And so that's where Russia really is good. They find that sweet spot. They say, okay, where is, where's the wedge? Where is the problem that we can go in and exploit and use to our own advantage? And we're seeing it already. We've seen it. We saw it from before the 2016 election. We've seen it, you know, since. Um, but we're definitely seeing it now. And one thing to keep in mind is, you know, there, there are different audiences that, uh, Russian propaganda and information warfare is going after. There's the internal Russian audience where they need to convince their own people that Putin is right, that this war is right, um, that the U.S. is the cause of all of this bad or that the West in general is the cause of all of this bad. Uh, and then there are the external audiences, which are, you know, us. And, and that's where we see the social media and the trolls coming and trying to uh, convince us of different things. But we, we already see it. Um, we see amplification of Trump's talking points this past weekend. His lawyers and his, uh, cronies were all over the media, you know, giving what, what I guess his, his legal defense is going to be, even though there's nothing legal about it. Um, but they're, they're definitely setting the narrative, um, because it is not just a legal issue. It will become a political issue as we get closer and closer to the election. And so I think you already see uh, a number of personalities and influencers already pushing those same talking points. Now, uh, this is where it gets very complicated. So I, this is why I actually have an online course about Russian influence operations, about foreign influence operations and how it works. People then come to me and say, well, are these people Russian agents? No, not necessarily. Um, but what you have is a, a network that has been created and ideas and philosophies that feed into those networks. And people see it within their own interest to promote those certain ideas. Now, some of them are Russian agents. We know of a number of journalists and influencers and politicians who are paid by the Russians uh, to promote some of these talking points. But then you have this organic part where People just truly believe this. And so they hear more people saying it. And so they'll start saying it themselves because they feel safe to say it or uh, it's good to be part of the crowd that's saying it. And so we do already see a lot of the narratives moving through those networks and reaching out onto sort of more mainstream platforms, even if they started in sort of the, the corners of the Internet. Yeah. But what do you expect? I mean, he here we are. um 15 months out from an election that um, is hugely consequential to Russia because, and Ukraine. you know, they're unlikely to win in Ukraine. 
um, unless we have a change of leadership here in the United States. So, you know, it's kind of part of the war effort. Do you expect we'll see new things? And parenthetically in that question, uh, in, in 2016, part of, part of this operation was Prigozhin and his gang, um, who oddly enough is still alive. I'd be interested in your thoughts on that, but, um, he, he, you know, does, does shutting down his gang have any effect on this? Well, so to start with the Prigozhin point, um, I'm not convinced that he won't be part of this. I think part of the reason he is still alive is because he's still useful. Uh, he has the networks to, to do a lot of the, uh, the chaos that we've, that we've talked about. But we also have to remember he's not the only one. So that, that the Internet Research Agency that we heard about in Robert Mueller's report, for example, and I think is sort of the most famous troll farm that we hear about, um, is hardly the only one. So there are a lot of these. They have, of course, built more. They have more oligarchs probably funding others. So just because one is shut down, you know, there are plenty of others that, that can happen. Um, I think we're going to see a lot of chaos. I think it's going to be very hard uh, for the truth to break through. That's not to say that most of the country won't know what the truth is. Um, but part of what is so annoying about this technique that the Russians use and which others now, of course, have learned from and use it is this flooding the zone or the fire hose of falsehood that we talk about when you're throwing out so many different narratives, um, which Russia does, which Trump does, which we see from all kinds of different bad actors. The problem is, I think that the media hasn't learned how to respond. And so, and some of us influencers or personalities who sort of know about these things, we also don't always know how to respond. Your, your instinct is to say, well, that's wrong. And here's why that's wrong. But you're now discussing the false information. You're not getting the, the true narrative through. And I think that is something we really need to work on over the next 15 months um, is you, you just can't. You're, you're never going to swat away every false narrative. So what you need to focus on is getting the true narrative, the truth out and just keep focusing on that. I don't think that the Democratic Party has mastered that yet. I think Biden is better at that. Um, I think the Obama administration was fearful to do so in the run up to 2016 because there was there were political consequences. I mean, I, 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 I think Obama really thought if I come out and I say that Russia is doing this without Republican support and McConnell refused to give it, that it really would look political. And that was going to be problematic. And so he kind of backed down. Um, but a lot of the people who are now working for Biden are those same people who seem to have learned their lessons. So we have seen from the Biden administration uh, in the run-up to Ukraine, for example, the, the Ukraine invasion, um, releasing little bits of this information. Hey, we know that this is what Russia is going to do. We know that these are the false stories that they're going to tell. So that when it comes, we as consumers of information can say, oh, okay, that makes more sense now. Um, but combating this in the long run is um, is much more complicated and it gets into civic education. And, uh, you know, I mean, it, it's a whole infrastructure of information and how we consume our information that needs to be changed. No doubt. Mark? Yeah. So, so I think I, I look back to, uh, you know, I, I retired in 2019. So when I left, I had actually switched from that old CT world, which we were just, you know, 
making fun of me about. Um, uh, and I and I went over and I was no the no no we were making fun of you about Metallica. Okay, I, I, I just want to be I want to be clear about that. <laughs> I was the op chief in Europe and, and Eurasia, and one of the things that that you know what we saw was this inability to have that you know kind of a war room mentality because the Russians were, as Alex said, flooding the zone. And one of the things that that we tried to do, and I think that, and, and Alex, you mentioned it, this has to do with these authorized intelligence disclosures, but it's it's the importance of exposing Russian information operations or Russian disinformation, you know, when we see it. So it's the actual gathering of intelligence and then telling the world. But it's, you know, you almost have to do it on a 24-7 basis. So I, I agree it's difficult, um, but really important. I just want to switch just a bit because I think you can really um, help some of the listeners on, on something that really bothers me, you know, we, as, as, as someone who served in the field, lived overseas, I am always interested on in how, how the world perceives the United States. You actually, uh, Alex, are, are living abroad. And so I think that you, you can give some, some really interesting perspective because I still, just for me, I still have, you know, occasionally have this notion of, of America as a, you know, bright, shining city on a hill. You go to a U.S. embassy anywhere, the consulate section, there's still long lines. People still want to come to the United States, but um, but it's getting a little shaky. And, and, and Alex, you'll remember a lot of things we did overseas in an embassy. We did a lot of finger wagging at countries that didn't adhere to the rule of law and democracy. Um, uh, and so, you know, now now it's uh, uh, I think we have to look at ourselves in the mirror. But how does the world see us? Simple question and really important question. Yeah, it is an important question. Um, I, I would separate out sort of the general public. Um, I'll just stick with Europe just because, like you said, that's where I live. And so that's what I know. I would separate out the general public and then the policymakers. Um, I think among the general public, there still really is, as you said, a, a love for America, a love for sort of our ideals. Um, the notion that you can come as nobody and become somebody, I think that's still really strong. And I think that that is exactly why you still see very long lines to get a visa uh, to the United States. You don't see long lines to I don't know, go to Saudi Arabia or go to China. You know, they, they want to come here or they want to come to Europe. They want Western values. Um, the policymakers, on the other hand, it's, it's quite different. I think there really is a concern among policymakers about what's going to happen in the next election. Um, when, when Trump came in, it was a shock to the system because uh, there had been this interdependence, some would say a reliance, and I think that's probably fair to an extent. Uh, that Europe was counting a little bit too much on us. Um, but, you know, they, they got over that the, and, and they started now doing much more. They're putting more money towards their own defense. They're, they're discussing among themselves, okay, how do we have a collective security in Europe? But then Biden came in and it got a little bit, oh, okay, we're back. It, it's going to be fine. And I think now they're starting to realize again, oh, wait, it might not be fine. So there's definitely concern, I would say, at the EU level as to what is going to happen in this next election. I think there's still a, not a misunderstanding, but a, um, a low gauging of the threat from Russia. I, I, the Ukraine war has brought it more into stark relief, but I think there's still some naivete about just how far Russia will go uh, or in terms of pushing for this. So if we just give them an off ramp or that kind of thing, you know, we hear those same narratives in Europe. And it's really the Baltic states uh, and Poland, you know, it's, it's the states who, who've had that history uh, with Russia who say like, no, we, we can't let that happen. They'll say whatever they need to say, uh, but we, we need to make sure that we're acting and acting in our own uh, security. 
but I, I also want to point out this, that this dynamic that we see in the United States of the far right and the far left, because we do have far left um, parties and actors that are being um, uh, influenced and paid by Russians and by Chinese and by others to influence what what our policies are in the United States. Those same dynamics are at work in Europe. So they're not, you know, they're not completely eyes shut to what's going on. And so when they look at our politics, they understand to a certain amount that it's happening with their politics as well. And you have parties that are being funded by some of these people. Um, the, the, the French election last year, if you think, you know, it was Emmanuel Macron against Marine Le Pen. And you know, it, it's sort of the same feeling. It was the same feeling in France that then that it is in the United States now. If Le Pen had won, that that would have changed the entire calculus for Europe in terms of taking on Russia and, and dealing with the Ukraine uh, war. And I think we're feeling now the same thing in the United States. Uh, which leader is in charge is totally going to set which trajectory, uh, not just our country goes on, but the collective West. I, m- I might add, uncertainty about which leader is in charge has its own consequence, right? So... You know, if we seem to be vacillating back and forth, one path to another, then we become an unreliable partner in any event. Um, uh, the system uh, not functioning to provide the stability it has in the past. Uh, this is the moment where we take a break and we say thanks to all of you who have been listening or in the general public and that we're going to now move on to the members only portion of the podcast. It's always full of great and interesting information. So you should be a member. So you don't miss it, go to the gsrnetwork.com, click on membership. It's $5 a month. And that helps us do programming like this, which, uh, as you have heard already, is super valuable. And as the members will hear, um, gets even more so in the next section. For now, thanks to everybody who uh, is in uh, uh, not a member. Please become one. And for the members, please stand by. <laughs> 